is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Greetings and welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Mike Kobe, and here's what's coming up. There is a, a very little voter registration amongst the young people who, in any event, must be the ones who are concerned about changing the course of the country, economically, politically, socially, in, in every sense. That was socio-political pundit Efi Lelangobe on the challenges facing Zimbabwe as the by-elections are held Saturday. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. Zimbabweans head to the polls Saturday for parliamentary and council by-elections that reflect more concern about the economy and repression of dissent than enthusiasm for issues. Reporting from Bulawayo, Eddie Gondo gives insight on what's at stake. As a test run for general elections next year, the focus is on putting food on the table and recovering from COVID-19 lockdowns and losses. And the main opposition movement for Democratic Change Alliance has been fractured by several internal court battles. Tokozane Kube wrested control of the party from Nelson Chamisa, then lost it to Douglas Monzora. The Chamisa-led faction found itself facing the prospect of being without a party home until the registration in late January of a new name, Citizens Coalition for Change. Deal, the nascent movement has been drawing large turnouts at its rallies, reflecting a desperate hope for change. The ruling ZANU-PF party has also appeared to react to CCC's rising stock by increasing crackdowns on dissent, including drafting draconian pieces of legislation and arresting politicians and journalists. Candidates are vying for 28 National Assembly seats and 122 local council seats based on deaths and recalls. And some races even have different voter rolls since councillors were recalled on different days. In Bulawayo, sociopolitical pundit Efinue breaks down the key issues. There is a, a very little voter registration amongst the young people who, in any event, must be the ones who are concerned about changing the course of the country, economically, politically, socially, in, in every sense. The second issue is that uh, the election is characterized by electoral violence. The police beating up the opposition is also manifested by the selective application of the law where ZANU-PF's rallies are cleared while those of the oppositions are refused by the police. And there is additional concerns also around the, the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission. This election is like the previous election, not free and fair. The CCC rally scheduled for Binga was banned by police citing a ZANU-PF rally in the same area. The CCC candidate for Binga, Prince Dubegos Banda, who is also chairperson for Matabele North, says marginalization is a critical issue for voters from the Tonga ethnic group that dominates that part of the region. He says there's no incentive to vote for the status quo. Nube says voters' roles are outdated and voter apathy is high. The voters' role is completely in shambles. You have people that are over 120 years who are still voting, and they tilt the, the electoral outcome in favor of ZANU-PF in certain areas. But that will depend on the extent of the opposition turnout. So there is a need to conduct extensive civil education. Observers such as Ngoe maintain that the issue of documentation is also one of the issues which have hampered voter registration in the region. An official from the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, Pamela Mapondera, is suing for unfair dismissal for allegedly releasing the voters' role to the opposition. Over 177,000 people reportedly were moved from their constituencies and wards without their knowledge. 
the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission has responded to the matter saying the role that had anomalies was not the final version reporting for VOA. This is Adigondo in Blauayo. Zimbabwe. In Somalia, an attack on al-Shabaab jihadists on an army base near the international airport of Mogadishu has left six people dead. A police spokesperson told VOA Somali service that five people are foreigners, including one Amisom soldier and four people working with the government on explosive training. According to Reuters, state television said security personnel killed the two attackers as they tried to force their way through the camp's gates. ABC News reports that Somali service spokesperson said the attackers, disguised as airport workers, carried pistols and grenades. Authorities say the incident took place at the Halani base, which hosts African Union peacekeepers and several embassies and international organizations. Al-Shabaab's radio Andalas claimed responsibility for the attack. The group, which is linked to Al-Qaeda, aims to impose a strict form of Islamic law on the country. The militants held Mogadishu until 2011 when they were driven out by AU troops. The U.S. ambassador to Libya, Richard Norlin, has praised the proposal from U.N. advisor Stephanie Williams and the support mission in Libya on finding a compromise on the problem of two rival prime ministers. Norlin said the situation in Libya is worrying, with the risk of the country being drawn into violence over the polarizing issue. Jason Pack, president of Libya Analysis, explained to VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shinawi whether that is enough as a U.S. role in Libya. It isn't enough. However, the international community has been helpful in promoting peaceful behavior. So when prime minister designate by the HOR, Fatih Bashara, said he would enter Tripoli, and he tried to enter Tripoli last week, and he found himself blocked by various militias, he could have provoked another attack for the capital, but he didn't do so. And part of the reason is that he knows the international community will blame whoever is responsible for causing violence. So it's good that the U.S. and other actors are putting out those signals. But more importantly, what people are competing for is to be the internationally recognized prime minister. To be prime minister of Libya in and of itself is not worth anything. So the international community must have a role in saying what the conditions for that international recognition are. And I believe there should be economic reform rather than what the kind of default condition is, oh, you've got to hold elections. So The Americans are saying, you know, we need you to commit to holding elections. And I think they should say we're committing to economic reform. Norland met with Prime Minister Abdel Hamid Dbaiba, as well as Prime Minister-designate of the House of Representatives, Fatih Bashaga, stressing that what matters to him is the consensus of political forces in Libya, especially that both of them are from the city of Masrata and know each other. So the agreement between them is possible. What's your take on that? Well, he's right that the international community's approach has been we will recognize any Libyan-Libyan process if we see it as legitimate by Libyan law and Libyan stakeholders. So Norland correctly stated that fact. And it is interesting, of course, that the two rival prime ministers are from Masrata and both have been thought to be pragmatists or moderates. But they've, by the very nature of Libya's political factions, as soon as you have an opposition, one group is going to support one side and the other another side. So Bashaga, even though he defended Tripoli from Haftar in 2019-2020, has become Haftar's candidate. And Dubai, by even though he is a moderate or businessman associated with the former Gaddafi regime, has now become painted into the corner of being the Tripoli and anti-old regime candidate.
Ambassador Norland praised the proposal made by the UN advisor Stephanie Williams and the support mission in Libya on finding a consensual constitutional base between the House of Representatives and the Supreme Council of State and to find a compromise that could solve the current problem of having two rival prime ministers in Libya. Is that feasible? Anything that Stephanie says deserves to be supported. I don't think any roadmap has been put forward which really is feasible to resolve this crisis, unfortunately. What we're seeing now is attempts to use the financial mechanisms, for example, to have the central bank defy or deny the Dubai government of funding as a way to force them out of office. And I think fundamentally this is going to play out based on who has access to funding. And whoever has access to funding will be the prime minister. And then all the institutions need to rally around that person. But I don't think the international community should let anyone occupy this chair and be recognized unless they commit to key structural reforms like abolishing subsidies, particularly on wheat, given the crisis that's going to be happening now with the loss of Ukrainian wheat supplies. That was Jason Pack, president of Libya Analysis, speaking with VOA senior analyst Mohammed Al-Shinawi. This month, 88 countries around the world are celebrating the creation of the international organization of La Francophonie, or the French-speaking community. 30 African countries are among them. From Kigali, reporter Eugene Uimana takes a look at its membership in the group, now that strained ties between Rwanda and France are on the mend. This man says this year's celebration reminds him again of the importance of strengthening Rwanda-France relations. He says that apart from learning French, the Francophone community has many projects and other advantages. This woman says if many Rwandans know French, it will help them stand out in the organization and create harmony and peace among all its members. Over the past two decades, relations between Kigali and Paris have been frosty. Rwanda has been accusing France of actively participating in the genocide against the Tutsis and moderate Hutus in 1994. Paris denies the allegations. However, a report submitted to the Rwandan government last year by a French historian said that France turned a blind eye, though his study didn't show evidence of complicity. But following the recent visit of French President Emmanuel Macron to Rwanda, bilateral relations are improving. Speaking at the Chigali Genocide Memorial May last year, President Macron asked forgiveness for France. He said that Paris had not heeded the warnings of impeding carnage and had for too long, in his words, valued silence over examination of the truth. But he added France had not been an accomplice to the killings. Political analyst Gatete Rumuriza says he hopes President Macron's statements are not merely rhetoric. I have a feeling that he has a good relationship with the President Kagame, but you know President Kagame will hold him accountable. So I think it's an interesting relationship. I anticipate that these relationships will uh, improve. The United Nations Trade Statistics Database, ComTrade, shows in 2019 Rwanda imported from France over 29.5 million US dollars worth of goods. Companies like Aegis, Etelsat, M2I Life Sciences, Inetum are eyeing potential investments in Rwanda and analysts say the promotion of the French language would be a great driver of bilateral trade ties. Both French and English are Rwanda's official languages and Rwanda also belongs to the Commonwealth Organization of English Speakers. Though English remains the main language of instruction, Rwandan President Pogame is working to revive Rwanda's participation in the world's French-speaking community.
Martin Gom is the cultural attaché at the Embassy of France in Rwanda. She says that the French language has been sleeping for many years here in Rwanda. But now France is very happy that it is awakening. In France, we continue accompanying the country's will and ambitions. Louisa Mushtiwabo is the Secretary General of the International Organization of La Francophonie, or OEF, and a former Rwandan Foreign Minister. She says the OEF is opting to place youth at the center of every project so they may sustain good relations, peace, security, as well as the French language. She says that she wants to dedicate this International Day of La Francophonie to youth, who she calls the incarnation and French expression of the future. Young people, she says, represent more than 7% of the population of OEF member states. She says that demography explains the viability of the French language in the world. During the month, the French embassy in Chigali and the Guadal government have planned several activities that include launching French clubs and theatrical performances. They say these are events that will bring people closer. For VOA News, Chigali, Rwanda. A critical shortage of medicines and medical supplies has hit Zambian public hospitals after the government stopped buying drugs six months ago. Patients are being asked to buy essential medicines, most of which are beyond their reach. Critics warn countless lives could be lost in the situation if not resolved quickly. Kathy Short reports for VOA from Lusaka, Zambia. Hansel Mwetwa is helping his brother who has pancreatic cancer. Mwetua says his family has paid more than $2,000 over the past three months to buy life-saving medicine for his brother. From the time we started attending, uh, doing his circles for chemotherapy, I think we just managed to access uh, the, the drug, which is gemcentabine, uh, once. All the other four circles that we've done so far, we have to buy the medicine and it's really costly. Brian Sampa, president of the Resident Doctors Association of Zambia, an association that protects the welfare of medical doctors operating in Zambia, has attributed the drug shortages to inefficiencies by the Zambian government. He says monthly reports are submitted to the Ministry of Health, but no action is taken. So the ministry should be acting on those reports. What we've seen is inefficiency, where those reports are sent, but there is no action which is taken. As soon as we start acting on those reports as soon as possible, and we should put a cap so that if we see that we are approaching 60% of our stocks, we procure. Because the fact that we don't manufacture the drugs here, it takes time to have those drugs delivered in the country. The Zambian government admits there is a widespread shortage of drugs in hospitals. Minister of Health Sylvia Masewo says her ministry is working to address the matter. The new board is working around the clock to ensure that we have stocks throughout the country. And I'm confident that the situation is going to stabilise so that we have a situation where we are three months stop before we talk about any stockouts. So yes, the situation countrywide is not stable, but it's not at zero, no. According to the World Health Organization, the Zambian government spends about 8% of its annual budget on public health 
which is far short of the Abuja Declaration signed in 2001 by African governments. African governments made a historic pledge to allocate at least 15% of their annual budgets to the health sector. So far, most African countries are failing to reach that target. Kathy Short for VOA News, Lusaka. Nearly 30 years of democracy, South Africa still faces multiple challenges, but political parties do not agree on who's to blame and how they should be solved. On Human Rights Day, on Monday, parties challenged each other to resolve mounting economic and social problems facing the country. Tuso Kumalo reports from Johannesburg. During commemorations marking Human Rights Day, political parties addressed different gatherings, debating problems and solutions facing the country. Some identified the legacy of colonialism and racism as the main cause of poverty and unemployment. But others are pointing at corruption as the main cause. Democratic Alliance Party leader John Stein Hessen told reporters after addressing a gathering in Pumalanga province that a lack of basic services caused by the government splendors has now become a threat to the human rights of citizens. It's impossible to enjoy freedom when you're going to bed hungry, where you don't have a job, where you're living without proper shelter. Uh, the cost of living is going up massively. Food prices are rising, fuel prices are rising, taxi prices and taxi fare and bus fare is rising. However, during his Human Rights Day speech to the nation, President Cyril Ramaphosa said the government has done its best to provide basics like water, electricity and shelter, although much still needs to be done. I'm calling on a new consensus to end poverty, inequality and unemployment. It must bring together government, business, community, civil society and community formations as well as individual citizens. But Economic Freedom Fighters Party leader Julius Malema told his gathering that the president and the ruling African National Congress are likely to blame for South Africa's challenges. Cyril Ramaphosa must step down with immediate effect because of unemployment. Because of the corruption we see in South Africa, because of the collapse of state-owned companies, which has led to poverty and unemployment. The ongoing war in Ukraine has also worsened South Africa's economic situation. But even on that issue, parties are not in agreement if Russia or NATO is to be blamed for the crisis. Tuso Kumalo for VOA News, Johannesburg. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has visited Project Panda, the working title of Netflix's One Piece series, its biggest production in Africa to date. Several young filmmakers showed him around the set at the Cape Town Film Studios, which has created over 100,000 industry jobs and contributed over $6.6 billion to the region's economy since opening 12 years ago. Reporter Vicky Stock has more from Cape Town. The aim of the visit was to get the president to see firsthand the impact the film industry is having on young black talent and the potential it has for creating more jobs. He met writer-director Ndumiso Mlokoti, who is a trainee on the massive Netflix project. Mlokoti showed him one of the vessels being used in Project Panda One Piece, which is a live-action anime pirate series. This particular ship cannot be placed in water. So what we have is we have a team of rigging grips 
who tie up these very, very large blue screens on, on metal frames and use cranes. And all these crane workers are skilled men and women who park all the blue screens all around the ship. And then those blue screens act as the canvas with which the visual effects department will paint in the oceans and the horizons. Writer, director, producer, Chlumelo Matika is also a trainee on the project and doubled as a tour guide Thursday. She was awarded the prestigious Fulbright Scholarship in 2016 and obtained her MFA in film at Syracuse University in upstate New York. On this set that you are, there's a, over 1,000 full-time jobs that this supports. This is an example of the value that we believe the creative industry can deliver for the administration's socioeconomic objectives. And this is why we feel that if you see in, in reality how these jobs are constituted, what goes into the end products that we see on our screens, then we realize the opportunity that the industry has to contribute meaningfully to job creation. President Ramaphosa was suitably impressed. To have Netflix, uh, which has become the real global name, uh, having a presence through you here and all the money that is uh, being invested and flowing into South Africa is uh, something that we cherish. And uh, we have decided uh, that the creative industries is a great opportunity to create jobs and so therefore we will continue creating a conducive environment uh, for people like yourself, investors, even new beginners to come in. So we will open the pathways and we will make sure that uh, your industry thrives. Netflix's local partner in this production is Film Africa, which, according to a media release, is the African continent's leading producer of international films and television series. Project Panda One Piece is due for completion in September. Six months ago, the global streaming giant announced a $400,000 fund that would go towards supporting black creatives in the South African film and television industry. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Mike Ove in Washington, D.C. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voanews.com. And thank you again for tuning in and choosing the Voice of America. of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. 
So join me on your local FM station, Saturdays and Sundays at 1500 and 2000 UTC. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel, host of Press Conference USA, VOA's newsmaker interview program. Join us each Saturday and Sunday when we talk with authors, analysts, and policymakers who provide fresh insight on topics ranging from U.S. politics and foreign policy to science, culture, and global health. You can listen to Press Conference USA on the radio or online at voanews.com slash PCUSA. While you're visiting our website, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear from you. Just send an email to PCUSA at VOANews.com or connect with us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Carol Castiel VOA or on Twitter at Carol Castiel VOA. That's Press Conference USA every Saturday and Sunday 